Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on what CMOs need to know about medical affairs from the 2023 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360. For more information on the CMO Summit, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. My name is John Yi, and actually the, uh, my introduction was slightly off. I'm the former CMO at Sobe North America, and I'm now on day one of week three of a six-month sabbatical. So, uh, and enjoying that, but glad to be here with all of you. Um, but I've been in the industry for uh, more than 20 years across a wide range of companies and therapeutic areas. But before we get started, I'd like to ask uh, the rest of the panelists here just to briefly introduce themselves, their names, their roles, and maybe just a word about their company. So, um, Joe, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, my name is Joe LSL. I'm a, uh, the CMO at Ankara Therapeutics, which is an oncology company, um, and I'm a first-time CMO, actually, uh, but have uh, you know, also a long history in uh, industry uh, ranging from early stage clinical development uh, through medical affairs, in fact, so. I'm Peg Crowley-Nowick. I'm the head of medical affairs at Lumanity. Lumanity is a company that was formed to bring diverse expertise together in order to come up with innovative solutions for biotech and pharma, and we've been in existence for about a year, so I'm, I'm leading the medical affairs portion of that. Hi, Dan Chung. I'm the uh, CMO of a French company called Sparing Vision. We are an ocular genomics company uh, dealing with uh, rare and hopefully common diseases. Uh, formerly from Spark Therapeutics, uh, was their therapeutic uh, head for ophthalmology. Uh, we were um, fortunate to have the first gene therapy approved by the United States FDA for a genetic disease and currently still the only one for inherited retinal disease, unfortunately. Uh, before then, I was actually an academic for most of my career. I've only been in industry for about nine years. Um, definitely differences between the two fields, uh, so it's good to be with you. Okay, thank you all. And uh, maybe I'm going to ask the audience to introduce themselves as well, just so that we can understand a little bit who is listening. Um, how many of you are CMOs? Could, if you could raise your hands. Okay. And uh, how many of you are CMOs at commercial stage companies with approved products? And how many at pre-commercial stage companies? Okay, I've got a mix of, of both here. Well, why don't we get started here? I'm gonna open up a question and ask each of the panelists to answer. Uh, most of you as CMOs um, have uh, come up through the clinical development pathway um, into your role as CMO. But one of the things that comes along the way with the CMO role is eventual responsibility, in most cases, for medical affairs as well. And um, one of the most important decisions that a CMO must make, you know, in, in um, advice with other members of the senior leadership team, is really around the build-out of the medical affairs team. So I'd like to ask each of our panelists to share their perspectives um, in terms of how do you see the roles and the value of the medical affairs function, and what are the variables that CMOs should consider um, that would determine the timing of the build-out of the medical affairs function, both the home office team as well as the field medical team, uh, prior to uh, expected approval of a company's uh, first product, because obviously that's a very big investment on the part of the company, so it's an important decision. So how should uh, CMOs advise their CEOs um, 
about that timing of that build out. So maybe uh, Joe, I'll ask you to start and then we'll go Peggy sure. and then Dan. Yeah, I, I think we were in a session in the main hall where somebody had mentioned uh, that registration is just part of the process. Uh, that you know, that, that you know, getting the drug approved is certainly you know top of mind for many of us in this room. But thinking beyond that um, is very important as well, obviously, because it has to be a, you know adopted and uh, a value story has to be built around it. And I think you know, in my view, the way medical affairs has always sort of um, one of their primary mandates has really been sort of that that bridge between you know the development apparatus and then through launch uh, to commercialization. Um, however, I think that where most of us live here, where we're thinking more in terms of early clinical development or you know, perhaps we've moved into phase two. It's a very relevant question as to when is it appropriate to build out a, a medical affairs group. And I think, you know, unfortunately the answer is sort of, it depends. And a lot of it comes down to philosophy. Um, and some of that may be driven by the therapeutic area you find yourself in. For instance, if you're in a, um, a rare disease space, you know, engaging with the external community is going to be very critical early on in development in order to make sure that you have the appropriate patients enrolled into your trials. Identifying the key opinion leaders, which again is a, a key role for medical affairs and where, where they can really add a lot of value. Um, perhaps in other therapeutic areas, you can you know wait for that a little bit uh, later on. I think my my personal experience, uh, where I've seen you know sort of the entry point of medical affairs being very beneficial, is sort of leading with a you know a very strong but very limited field team that's mandate is really there to sort of help assist with site identification, engagement, and um, you know, sort of helping with the support of the clinical trial. And so really, you know, probably phase one might be a little bit early, but as you're sort of you know, transitioning from there into you know, the, the, the disease states that you know that you want to take your drug, um, you, you sort of you know, pick your people appropriately based on their uh, areas of expertise and take it from there. That's, that's a great answer, and the 14 years that I've been working on the consulting side of the business, I, I haven't found a consistent answer to that question. We make recommendations, but um, unfortunately, we get called in sometimes six months before launch to try to build a team, and that's not the right time to do it, and you're really losing a lot of the effectiveness that you would get from medical affairs if you don't think ahead of time. So in going back to what Joe said, I would say that thinking about phase two is the time to start thinking about what, what you need for the future and how you are going to use that medical affairs team. Uh, the piece that I might not agree with completely is I'm not somebody who likes to recommend starting with a field medical team. I think your field medical team is critical, but I think starting with that person who's going to lead medical affairs is a critical piece because you bring in somebody who has experience across medical affairs so that you're thinking about it from a communication standpoint, from a field medical standpoint, from a medical information standpoint, from all of the HEOR and the thinking that goes into building a bigger organization, someone who can think strategically about that, but also roll up their sleeves and get the work done. So my recommendation is that you should start thinking about maybe the strategy around medical affairs and within that initial strategy, build out the timing. And that timing is probably around phase two. And at that point, it's do you need somebody from field medical to get out or is your lead leader of medical affairs capable of doing it until you're ready to spend that extra dollar? I think your last statement is a perfect segue into my comments because that is really a lot of it is the economics 
so if you're a small startup, you don't really have the uh, resources to get a big field team. Uh, although I, I tend to go a little earlier in medical affairs, being in the ocular gene therapy space, there's a lot of things that are not known about the methodology, about the, what gene therapy actually is. So getting out early, even when you're pretty much uh, completing your IND package and things of that nature, and, and I've been in the ocular gene therapy space almost 30 years, so both on the academic side and on the industry side. So for me, I have a very large network of KOLs, and you know, we call them KOLs, I call them friends and colleagues. So the, the idea that you want to really engage this group relatively early, especially if you have a novel therapeutic, which is what we have because we are a gene-independent way of saving vision versus a gene-specific way. So for us, and it really goes down to me as the medical affairs group, uh, is really blanketed a lot of conferences, and you know we're fortunate that we get a lot of invitations to speak and things, but really talking about the mechanism of action, uh, what the target populations are, and this all is done in a very early stage. So we are just now a clinical grade company where we are going to be entering the clinic uh, hopefully in the next uh, uh, few months, well hopefully in the next month actually. Um, but even when I was at Spark, we had a field team very early uh, as, um, you know, phase one was going on, but even phase three is obviously when we had the bulk of it, but there was a lot of medical affairs going on in those early stages to really introduce the idea of what gene replacement was and, and what the disease was all about because it's a rare disease, and so you really need to get that saturation into the target population that we were going for, so... All right, well, thank you for all those. I'm gonna ask uh, uh, some follow-up questions based on those first comments, and maybe the first one I'll, I'll give to you, Peg. Um, having seen this now um, over many years at different companies, um, you mentioned uh, sometimes companies start late to build out the medical affairs teams. What do you see as the consequences of starting too late to build out the medical team? Well, I think we heard somebody in, the, I think it was the panel just before say you can build it, but they won't necessarily come. I think that's, that's the problem that you have is if you haven't had the time to really get the awareness out there to make sure that people know what's coming, what the data looks like, what the disease and unmet needs are, then it really is a challenge to, to make up that time. You don't get a chance to do a launch again. So having enough time to set the runway is really absolutely critical. Any, anybody else have any comments about starting too late? I mean, I, I just want to echo, uh, you know, your, your thoughts on this because, I mean, I think that it, especially in areas where you're a novel MOA or where the disease state is not very well, you know, understood by the broader, you know, uh, you know community, but, uh, you know, advances, you're sort of on that, you know, vanguard of, of scientific advancement, you know, really being able to provide that, I don't know, disease state awareness, for lack of a better term, or something like that is going to be critical and has to be factored in so that basically by the time you get right up to launch, you know, date, you know your phase three data is already read out and, you know, the, the stage has been set. And again, I think that a critical metric is if you reach that point and you haven't adequately done that first piece, you know, then, then you're, you know, you've got a lot of uh, a hole to dig out of, so. You still need the time. You just can't make yep. up for the time. The other piece that people tend to forget is that you can't decide today that you're going to have a team and you'll have them tomorrow. It takes probably about six months to get a really good team 
in place, trained out in the field, and all of that engagement happening. So you have to back it up a little bit further in order to get the right people in place. Well, and, and also those people are also responsible for training the commercial arm of the company as well as you're building that out. So there's an interdependency that's built in as well. No, I was just going to mention that point exactly, is that it, the way I look at medical affairs, we're the medical experts internally. And it takes time to build up medical experts. You can't always rely on the CMO or the medical director. And the reality is not only they're training the commercial team, they're training the marketing team, they're training the payer team, they're training the patient advocacy team. They're doing all this training and one person can't do that. And so you really need to start early so that they can get this expertise, that they really can internalize the data. Because if they don't know the data, then it's, it's kind of useless to send them out in the field. So they really have to have a mastery of all this, and it takes time, and it takes time from the CMO or the medical director to really get a level of proficiency in their field teams because they are an extension of the company. And it really is how they're perceived in the field as to uptake of the information and things of that nature. So you know, that's why I'm much more of an advocate to start earlier than later. Yeah, thanks for all of those uh, comments. So it's, it's kind of obvious, I guess, that everybody would assume that one of the key roles of the medical team is to communicate the data as it gets presented and as it gets generated, not just presented at scientific meetings, but to present it uh, to um, HCPs and KOLs. But um, what, beyond just communication of data internally and, and training and communicating data externally, uh, in the pre-launch period, you mentioned a few other key things that the medical team does around mechanism of disease, mechanism of action. Um, are there other things that uh, are really important that you think that the medical team can uniquely fill the role that the clinical team or the commercial team um, isn't able to do? Or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, I think as you move through development and you're, you know, generating data, and I, I think the panel that was up here before was talking a little bit more about the sort of interactions with the finance community, but I think that there's a common theme, and that is, you know, how you tell a story. And it's just our audience is a little bit different in this case. And so the communication strategy, which is a sort of a broader topic, I think is something that, that medical affairs does an exceptionally good job of not only leading and shepherding, but also sort of bringing everybody else sort of in line with. But um, a key element to that is obviously the publication plan. And I think it's something that we don't, uh, certainly earlier stage companies don't tend to think about because everything is kind of being done in series. But pretty soon, you know, it's all about, okay, how are we not only getting that data out there, are we reaching the right audiences, you know, do we right, have the, you know, the relevant, uh, you know, uh, post hoc analyses in place for these uh, data, how, you know, where are we strategically placing it, when is it actually going to be, you know, submitted to, um, you know, articles, do we have the right authors, uh, everything. Um, I, I see that at least, you know, in organizations that I've been with, I mean, I think that a very successful medical organization really had a very successful publication and scientific communication, you know, aspect to it, so. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And the scientific narrative to make sure that there's consistency mm -hmm. across the entire organization when you're talking about the asset and the, the data. The other place in that pre-launch period that's really critical is thinking about an integrated data generation program. If you're not thinking about the gaps that exist in the data set before the, you get a little bit further along, you don't have the time to fill them. Just because a phase three is successful, it doesn't mean that all of the data is there to answer all the questions that healthcare providers may have, that payers may have, that patients may have. So thinking ahead and identifying either sources through 
additional studies or sub-analyses or real-world evidence is really a critical role for medical affairs. And that's, that's not a single group doing that. That's a cross-functional effort that is typically led by medical affairs. I, I would say that that's really important. Yeah, and if I can just add into that, because I think a key element that also, you know, uh, doesn't always get appreciated is that it's sometimes important, especially in later stages of development where you have larger data sets that you hope to, to then, you know, be able to communicate a aspects of. It's important to have medical affairs there to sort of be there even at the sort of, uh, you know, when the protocol is being written and, and, you know, put together so that on the back end of that there aren't, you know, key pieces of data that are, you know, not perhaps needed in order to you know, satisfy the, the primary or secondary objectives of the trial or to facilitate regulatory approval, but to be relevant to payer audiences and other, you know, things that based on their insight gathering that they've taken taken back. And, you know, you, you can't retro-engineer that into a protocol, so it's important to sort of have that voice at the table as well. A absolutely, and I would also add the compassionate use program is something that typically falls to medical affairs in getting that set up and executed which is really critical, especially for a global launch. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, there was many more things than just MOA, as obviously disease and knowing what the disease is, and that there was a high unmet need, that there were no other therapeutics for this. But we also had a surgical procedure, so they had to know the surgical procedure. We also had to, the idea that this is a genetic disease, so the way you diagnose a genetic disease is through genetic testing. So now you also have that component. So you really have to look at what surrounds the therapeutic as well in the background. And that's something the field teams really need to know because they're going out as experts. Uh, they may not be all geneticists or whatever, but they need to be able to answer basic questions about that. So when it came to our space at this field, they, they really had to have multidisciplinary education in a lot of these different topics to really be uh, someone that could talk to other physicians and things. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, we've been talking about communicating data, communicating education, uh, information about the, the drug, about the procedures, about other things related. Um, but, uh, Joe, you mentioned the word insight gathering. So, you know, uh, field medical teams don't just have a mouth that can talk. They also have eyes and ears that can see and hear things. Could you say, um, you know, when we talk about medical insight gathering, um, what do we mean by that? Like, and what is the value um, of that? And, you know, what is that, how does that work? And uh, maybe if, if you have any examples to share uh, of any view of what those medical insights are um, that um, can generate value for the company. I mean, I'll, I'll start very high level and very simply. I mean, I think that in, a, in, in the sort of, you know, as your field team becomes very, um, you know, sort of uh, comfortable with uh, the experts that they engage with uh, in the community. A lot of times, they'll they'll get the chance to sort of, kind of tease out themes on what what types of questions are being asked of, of, of them in their data set, or what are the things that really appear to to resonate with those that are, you know, um, you know, guideline writers or people who you know speak at the podium a, a lot. And a lot of that then, you know, can be brought back into brought back in house and sort of communicated to the team that you know frankly doesn't have those you know frequent or those levels of, of, of you know close dialogue with some of these folks to, to basically help you know um, well to, to help inform strategy as you're thinking about that and maybe even you know ideas for further data gathering I would say that the insights are really the currency of the, the field medical team and and the medical team in general 
I think that the critical piece there is that your medical team needs to understand what the strategy is, where you're going, what's important to the company, and have the ability to ask questions. Talk about data, but have a great scientific discussion and ask follow-up questions so you get some depth. Um, one of the um, programs that we run is to not only have the field medical team, but in a global perspective, bringing all the other groups together that may engage with outside thought leaders or healthcare providers or payers, bring those insights together and do some trends analysis on them. And for one of our clients in doing that, a decision was made to cancel a $15 million clinical trial that was just set to start. And that seems like a, a pretty big statement, but what happened was as they started to evaluate the trends while they were building towards the study, it was really clear that this was not something that was going to be successful based on the insights that were coming in globally from many different types of sources. So that's an example, a really actionable example that turned around and helped the company save money and make better decisions with their resources. I think the biggest question we had when it came to insights was, do the physicians in the field really see a benefit for what we saw in phase three and how uh, the gene therapy reversed uh, blindness and was able to restore function to different aspects of vision? And then it was the whole idea that you know, our, is our endpoint, because for our primary endpoint in our phase three, it was a novel endpoint. Uh, do they see that as a valid endpoint? Uh, and so just getting that kind of feedback, and of course, competitive intelligence is always uh, helpful as well. Thank you. Um, I'm not gonna wait for the five minute bell to ding, um, but uh, I thought we've got a lot of experience. We've probably got a lot of questions out here in the audience. I wanted to open it up if anything here that was said, or if you wanted to share any of your own thoughts on experiences with medical teams um, that you think would add to their discussion here. Hi, um, I'm Holly Shackner. I had the pleasure of working with half the panel up there. <laughs> um, and I think that the, the most important thing, and I've spent a lot of my career both um, in large pharma and then small biotech and startup, as well as in medical affairs and in clinical development. I think the most important thing that the CMOs need to know about medical affairs is that medical affairs should not be separate from clinical development. They, they really need to integrate, perhaps where a veto power, decision power comes into play can depend upon the phase of studies. But it is so important, and the CMO really needs to encourage that, that um, interplay because it, I've, I've only seen medical affairs come to the table too late, never too early. It's how you bring them to the table from a cost-effective manner that works for your company. No, thank you for that comment. Anybody else? There's one dimension that the panel might want to just talk through a little bit more, and that's the interface with our commercial colleagues as well. I think maybe you did touch on it earlier in the discussion, but I find that having a medical affairs expert in your team uh, certainly helps to provide that initial interface with commercial. Yeah, so let's, let's just pivot a little bit, because we were mostly talking about the pre-launch period. Now let's just move forward in time a little bit to the launch phase, the peri-launch phase, immediately pre-launch and then in the early launch phase. Um, 
what should that interaction with the commercial team look like? And as you think about that, both in the home office, what does that interaction look like? But then as you see it happening also out in the field, what should that look like? Any advice? So when we, when we launched our product, a medical fair was, was deeply involved because, as, as I mentioned, we were the medical experts, so we had to train the entire uh, commercial group. But it was not just them, it was the payers as well. So we had a, a government payer team and a private payer team. And so we went on all those meetings with the payers, uh, medical affairs did, to really talk about the disease, the data from the clinical trials, all that. So we were lockstep with commercial. Matter of fact, there wasn't a piece of material that went out of the company that went commercial uh, from marketing or anything without medical affairs approval. So we went, went through everything, we looked at everything. Uh, so it was really um, a, a great partnership. Uh, I wish I was at a uh, launch phase now because I would rehire that entire group. Uh, and we, we just uh, worked very well together because we had a very common cause. I would say that there's so many places in the intersection with commercial and medical affairs in that peri-launch period and post-launch period. So let's just start at the launch planning mode. Of course, commercial tends to set the strategic imperatives initially, but medical affairs has to be right in the middle of that. And thinking, because medical affairs is thinking a little bit further down the road, the next three years, whereas the commercial team is thinking about this next year really quickly. So the strategic planning is absolutely critical. Thinking about other components of medical affairs, medical information, really a, a, an essential part of getting ready for a launch, making sure that the information is provided, that the call center is ready, that if a, a sales consultant is out in the field and has additional questions, those can very quickly get answered. And, and that's all in addition to the work that the, the team is working on in training for, for the sales team. So I say headquarters and field medical have major roles in launch, working very closely with their partners. I, I see someone in the back. Do you want to... Oh. There's a question in the back. But yeah, I, um, Jose Trevejo from Tarsus. I'm also an eye care, so I know why you call them friends and not KOLs. The ophthalmology group is really great to work with. Um, this was a great comment over here about clinical development and medical affairs, but it's great in concept. How about some specifics? How do you do that? How do you keep them, how do you keep your clinical development and medical affairs in lockstep? What are some strategies to do that, committees or having them work together so that you get that, that synchrony, that synergy? I mean, well, right now it's pretty easy since I am medical affairs, I'm the CMO, so I cover uh, <laughs> clinical development as well, so it's relatively easy. But I will say that that is not always the case. In some entities that I've been associated with, there are significant silos, and communication is not robust. Uh, so I think the, the way we keep it is have really interactive teams where your medical affairs department is really talking to clinical development, and where we are also talking not only now, but what commercialization could look like if we make certain decisions it's going to be a hamper for commercialization. I'll just take indication. If we say, uh, and this was for the product, if we said it was uh, retinitis pigmentosa as medical affairs and clinical development was 
doing medical uh, RP and LCAs. Well, commercial is like, no, we don't want those labels at all. We want a genetic-based label because you're excluding a lot of these other folks that have the same gene defect, but they're just called something else. So it's really this interaction uh, between clinical and medical with the idea that commercialization is going to happen one day and keeping those thoughts. So you really have to think long term. But the, the biggest thing is just making sure that people are talking to each other on a regular basis. I'm not talking quarterly. I'm not talking monthly, weekly almost, that you keep this line of communication open. So. Yeah, I mean, um, not in my current role. We're in the pre-IND space of uh, what we're talking about. Uh, you know, things uh, a little bit down the road, uh, this is a little premature for us, but where I just came from, which was a large organization, we actually uh, had the benefit of having medical affairs at the table for sort of a, uh, it was almost like a development subcommittee. And then, you know, it, a lot of different cross-functional uh, per personnel were, were there, but medical affairs had a voice and was, uh, I mean, in our case, was involved in even at phase one. Uh, which is pretty unusual, but um, I think that, that that probably is a decent model for 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 ensuring that level of integration um, so that the kinds of things that Daniel was mentioning will be pulled through when, when you reach launch. And I would just add to that, not only are, is medical serving on those core teams, but they are also helping with some of the advising, so making sure that if there are advisory boards or need for one-on-one -on -one engagement, it's the medical team can help make that happen. So you, you have a lot of activity there happening. There was a question in the back. There was a, I'll, I'll just add on that. If was there another question in the back, but I just to build on that. Um, you know, one of the, the other things that happens at any company as it, as it goes through clinical development and uh, gets ready for launch and then launches the product, the company obviously grows in size uh, during that time period. So the ways of working in the earlier days of the company, which when it's still very small, can happen really directly through one-on-one -on -one relationships. But as the company gets ready for launch and now you have a clinical team, you have a medical team, you have a commercial team that has sales, marketing, market access, the communication can no longer easily rely on just purely you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships and hallway discussions. So to Dan's point, I think the other piece of advice I would share is that some structure and process needs to be added to create these cross-functional teams with regular meetings and, and ways of working together to ensure that the communication can flow well. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the CMO Summit 360, editorials, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thanks for listening.